Currently based in Phoenix, Arizona, Daniel Stein Koken is a visiting scholar at ASU and previously taught Jewish studies at UCLA, the University of Oregon, and Yale, and the University of Greifswald in Germany. My German is getting better. His research and teaching ranged across Renaissance, Jewish, Renaissance, Jewish, and Israel studies, and has been supported by the Villa I Tati, the Harvard University Center for Italian Renaissance Studies in Florence, um, and the Kata, Kata, Hamburg Kolleg of the Ruhr University in Bochum, Germany. Have not mastered my German yet. Uh, Daniel first spoke to CSP in June 2018, presenting a program on iconic Israeli songs entitled Le Kol Shiraya. He came back with a, n another program about uh, Israeli songs influenced by American and foreign songs. Found in translation. We did that in honor of um, Bar Barney's uh, birthday. And we'll be working on hopefully another uh, commemorative program for Barney Gilmore this coming November. So, um, but this is, this program, as I said, is more in line with his main focus. Please join me in welcoming back to Orange County for his third time, Daniel Stein Koken. Yay! All right, well, thank you so much, Ari, for the warm introduction. It's always a great delight to come down to the wonderful CSP and hearing about all these amazing programs. I wish I could attend some of them, but they seem to mostly be sold out in any case. So, um, anyway, so yeah, it's always a delight to come down here, even if uh, the 405 has a few more cars on it than the Via Appia Antica uh, outside of Rome that you see here. But thank you again to Ari Katz for the, one, for the invitation uh, to come, and it's nice to see a lot of familiar faces uh, here in this room. And I'll just note before I begin, the last two times I've been here, it's, I've dealt with a lot of music, so there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of songs to listen to. This is going to be a more textual talk, but bear with me, and, and I'll try to show how these particular texts are extremely fascinating in their own right. And if things work out, technology permitting, there will be sort of a fun little uh, brief uh, sort of surprise. So we'll see. Uh, keep our fingers crossed. Okay. Everyone can hear me all right? I'm going to try to adjust the lights. The okay. Light yeah, yeah, yeah. You can make it a bit darker here. Yeah. All right. I might struggle a little bit here, but I'll do my best. So, the story of Rome and the Jewish imagination presents us with a paradox that cuts to the heart of the dichotomy in Jewish culture between land of Israel and diaspora, homeland and exile. As capital of a mighty empire that crushed Judea, ancient Israel, in successive revolts, and destroyed the Sanka Temple in Jerusalem in 70 CE, and as the beating heart of a church that for centuries condemned, restricted, and oppressed Jews, Rome, more than any other place, symbolizes Jewish weakness, defeat, and exile. The vivid imagery of the Arch of Titus, depicting the Roman triumph over Judea, and the parading of the holy temple implements, most, oh, whoops, there we are, most especially the menorah throughout the city, is as palpable today as it was at the time of its erection nearly two millennia ago. And yet, Rome hosts what is likely the oldest continually existing Jewish community in the world, one that goes back to at least the mid-first century BCE, and is, in addition, the only place of consequence in Western Christendom in which Jews were neither denied residency nor expelled. Indeed, they even remained in the very same Roman neighborhoods throughout the vast majority of their existence. In short, 
In a history replete with instability and insecurity, ruptures and new beginnings, Rome stands out as A, and most likely and more significantly, the great exception. At the very center of a frequently hostile empire and church, Jews have arguably most been at home. For centuries, Jews in Rome could be citizens, were exempt from paying any special poll tax, unlike Jews in many other communities, and enjoyed a high social and economic status guaranteed by papal decree. The famous 12th century traveler, Benjamin of Tudela, on whom more later, exults in his itinerary, and here you see a Hebrew manuscript of this text and an image of the title page of the Latin translation from the 16th century. He exults in this text how the Roman Jews, and I quote, are very much respected and pay tribute to no one, and proceeds to emphasize their often close relations with the Pope. Indeed, thanks to such relations, Roman Jews were at times able to intercede successfully on behalf of Jewish communities elsewhere in the Christian world. In the modern age, Jews have played an even more prominent role in Roman affairs. It was a Jewish soldier, Captain Giacomo Segre, who in ordering the cannon fire that triggered the Breccia di Porta Pia, the breaking through of the walls of Rome on September 20th, 1870, who helped bring about the end of papal rule in the internal city and the complete unification of Italy. Yes, and between 1907 and 1913, Rome even had in Ernesto Nathan a Jewish mayor. And for part of that time, Italy even had a Jewish prime minister. So it's sort of amazing to imagine the Jews who were in a ghetto in Rome until 1870. And then two generations later, there was a brief period of time where both the prime minister of Italy and the mayor of Rome were Jewish. What an amazing uh, state of affairs. And then, of course, back in the 1930s, you had the racial laws and Jews lost all their rights in Italy. So an incredible up and down, uh, late 19th, early 20th centuries. But overall, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the Jews of Rome assimilated into general Italian society with a speed and to a degree of which their trans-Alpine co-religionists, those German Jews, for example, north of the mountains, could only dream. This, of course, is not to say that the Jews of Rome always had it easy. They themselves probably first arrived in the imperial capital as slaves, acquired on Roman military campaigns in the Near East. Already in the first century BCE, the famous Roman orator Cicero complained of the odium of Jewish gold and of how the Jews' sacred rights were at variance with the glory of our empire, the dignity of our name, the customs of our ancestors, while the Roman emperor Tiberius seems even briefly to have expelled them outright. From the early 14th century, the Jews of Rome were assessed an annual payment to finance the Roman carnival games and compelled to play a starring role in the celebrations. Evidence suggests that old Jews were at times locked in barrels and sent hurling down Montestaccio, as we see here, while for much of the early modern period, carnival opened with a race of naked Jews down what is today the Via del Corso, one of Rome's principal avenues. And if the Jews of Christian Rome were never expelled, they were confined for more than three centuries to a tiny ghetto, uh, here's one more scene from the carnival, uh, to a tiny ghetto in what is geographically a very large city. Here you get a sense of just how tiny the ghetto space is relative to the vastness of Rome. And there they were restricted to menial occupations and obliged to attend humiliating conversionary sermons on Shabbat, no less. Finally, during the World War II German occupation, the Jews of Rome experienced their darkest days. 
On October 16, 1943, in particular, 1,022 of them were deported to Auschwitz, of whom only 15 returned. Nevertheless, the Jews of Rome survived, as perhaps best expressed by the Roman Jewish writer Crescenzo del Monte in a sonnet composed in the early 20th century in Judeo-Roman, a dialect that has in recent generations all but disappeared, Del Monte's narrator embodies the Roman Jewish community as follows. I have seen Julius Caesar and Pompey and had my troubles with Vespasian. And since then I have screamed out my market call. Many of the Roman Jews were peddlers throughout the ghetto period. I have seen many a house collapse completely. In the meantime, thank God, I am still on my feet. But the story of Rome and the Jewish imagination is much more than simply the history of a most special Jewish community. For Rome came to, and to some degree still does, symbolize for Jews much more than a most special city. After three disastrous revolts against the Roman Empire and antiquity, Jews may have learned to accommodate Rome politically, but ideologically, theologically, even metaphysically, they took their opposition to her to untold heights. The struggle against Rome, pagan or as subsequently Christian, and the rabbis really didn't draw such a stark distinction between the two, became simultaneously an intimate rivalry among brothers and a war ranging across, across all time and space. The rabbis actually retroactively exaggerated, uh, um, indeed to a substantial degree invented, the imperial Roman restrictions on Jewish practice in Torah study, and devised responses to Rome on every possible level. Rome came in the Jewish imagination to symbolize the zeal for universal empire gone berserk, as revealed in its alleged, and we have a rabbinic source that talks in, this, in such terms, uh, 365 chieftains and 365 markets, each of which contained 365 palaces accessed by 365 steps, and this repeated evocation of the days of the solar years meant to sort of embody how Rome in its hubris is trying to, in a way, replicate the sun and its universality and its uh, ubiquity and its power. In addition, as we shall see shortly, Rome is understood to epitomize the human attempt to supplant God. The Jewish struggle against it thus assumed the greatest import and constituted a zero-sum game as reflected in the, in the rabbinic teaching that when Rome is up, Israel is down, and vice versa. In light of and against this backdrop, this presentation aims to highlight key moments in the Jewish reception, construction, accommodation of, and resistance to this symbolic Rome. It argues that for centuries, Rome represented the ultimate universal and eternal adversary whose domination has expressed itself in religious, political, spatial, and even architectural terms. This domination needed to and could be countered, albeit merely in an alternate textual reality or form. Strikingly, even here, the resistance to Rome was typically carried out in a most subtle, surreptitious, and downright stealthy manner, via tiny gnats or mosquitoes, hidden messiahs, ignored monuments, and seemingly harmless, but in fact, quite vicious biblical citations. To be sure, after the failed rebellions of the first and second centuries CE, Jews could not conceive of undermining mighty Rome in any other way. But they also seem to have appreciated that such antics best exposed the folly of, and as such represented the best response to, Rome's limitless ambitions. In short, 
Rome's universalistic project, its desire to conquer the whole of the world, whether politically or religiously, necessarily created myriad opportunities for particularistic or localized Jewish resistance. As such, Rome has been an immensely productive mental laboratory for Jews, training them continually in the art of survival. In modern times, the Jewish attitude towards Rome has in many respects become much more positive. Beginning in the 19th century, the Eternal City became something of a pilgrimage site for, modern, for secular Jews, a trend perhaps best reflected or exemplified by Sigmund Freud. In addition, with and thanks to the consolidation of the Italian nation state in the second half of the 19th century, when modern Italy, the modern Italy that we know really came into being for the first time, Rome actually came in some admittedly controversial quarters to serve not only as the implacable enemy out of the past, but also as a model for the present and future. Finally, improving Catholic-Jewish relations over the past half century have further muted the conflict between Rome and the Jews, even as they have, as we shall see, spawned some new forms of Jewish uh, resistance. Throughout this lecture, I wish to remain attentive to the relationship between Rome as city and Rome as symbol, and asking to what degree the place of Rome in the Jewish imagination, again to evoke my title, is the same or different for the Jews of Rome as opposed to Jews everywhere else. I hope to show that for all the broad similarities in attitude between these two groups of Jews, thanks to the intimacy of their presence and the complexity of their interactions with popes and the Roman elite, the Jews of Rome at times amplified and at times downplayed or even resisted the broader Jewish discourse concerning Rome. In doing so, they often deployed the same tactics of stealth and subterfuge that characterized the general Jewish response to the eternal city. So, next section is called Rabbinic Rome or the gnat that became a dove. We begin with the rabbinic text that arguably best evinces the Jewish response to Rome outlined just now. A well-known tale describing the Roman Emperor Titus's despoiling of the temple in Jerusalem and his subsequent triumphant return to Rome. This story, which appears in at least some form 12 times across rabbinic literature, can in its most developed form be divided into three sections. In the first, Titus violates the sanctity of the temple by entering into its Holy of Holies, reserved, of course, normally for the high priest on Yom Kippur, engages in sexual relations with one, or in some versions, two prostitutes on its altar, atop a Torah scroll, no less, slashes its curtains with his sword, and seizes its holy vessels. In the second part, during his return voyage, the emperor directly affronts God, suggesting that the deity's powers are restricted to the sea alone, as if to imply that on land it is Rome that is supreme. And in the third and final portion of the narrative, Titus is greeted with acclaim back in Rome, relaxes in the waters of a bathhouse, the Romans love their baths, as you can see when you go to Italy, and is about to experience the pleasures of wine, but is first killed thanks to a gnat or mosquito that enters into his nose and continually pecks at his brain. Rich and striking as, this, as is this narrative's presentation of the Rome-Jewish confrontation throughout, the resistance to the Roman imperial project that we find in the, its third part is really of most interest, I think, to me and to us today. Here is the relevant passage 
from the most developed version of the story, which comes from Rabbinic Midrash, from uh, Midrash Leviticus uh, Rabbah. When he arrived in Rome, and you can follow along here, when he arrived in Rome, all the people of the city came out and acclaimed him, oh, conqueror of the barbarians. Immediately, they heated the bathhouse, and he entered and washed himself. When he came out, they poured for him the double glass for after the bath, and God appointed a mosquito or gnat for him, and it entered his nose and gnawed its way up until it reached his brain. Take that, Titus. He said, call for the doctors to split open the head of that man so that I can know with what the God of that nation has punished him. Right away, they summoned the doctors. They split open his brain and found it at the likeness of a young dove that weighed two pounds. And then Rabbi Elazar said, I was there. And they put the young bird on a scale, and yeah, it weighed two pounds. They took it out, they, they took it and put it in a bowl, and as it withered, so Titus deteriorated, and when the mosquito flew away, so did the soul of Titus the wicked. Quite a story. So what can we say about it? So in response to universal ambition and acclaim, a most particular creature, and earlier in the, in the Midrash, uh, it's described as the lowliest creation of all, this gnat or mosquito, God's lowliest creation, uh, uh, takes Titus on. The threat arises not from the barbarians across the Roman borders in the, on the frontier, but in the capital city's very heart. And because the gnat or mosquito is so small and seemingly harmless, it can be neither anticipated nor resisted. The Romans may have prepared the, for the emperor a double glass of wine for his mouth, but just at this moment, a single, gnat, a single gnat enters his nose instead and doubles into something else, a dove inside of him. Finally, instead of drinking at once, Titus senses himself being eaten over time. Titus's response to this divine ambush acknowledges the specific nature of the attack. The conqueror of the barbarians is now curious to know the exact nature of the punishment that the god of that particular nation has meted out to him. Now, so one scholar argues that this is a sign that Titus actually uh, recognizes that he's been sinful and accepts the punishment and acknowledges the sovereignty of this God who, when he was on the waters, he had sort of mocked. But I actually have a different take on this, and I think that far from accepting God's punishment, Titus actually believes that he can gain mastery over it, and that, indeed, it is precisely this hubristic notion that is paradoxically brings about uh, the full punishment, uh, his actual punishment and demise. So I actually claim that this tale is a kind of parody of both imperial conceptions of power and very idea of Greco-Roman tragedy. There is no indication necessarily that the gnat would, was going to kill Titus, and um, it actually turns out it's his desire to know what this thing is and to know something is to have a kind of mastery over it that actually leads to his, to his demise. The presence of the gnat in the emperor's brain can thus be read symbolically as a test of the empire and its leader's readiness to accept and acknowledge the presence of something a bit alien in its midst, say Israel, uh, that it neither completely understands or controls. This is a test, of course, that Titus, and by extension Rome, fails. For when he calls for the doctors to split open the head of that man so that I can know with what the god of that nation has punished him, he implies a certain superior, superior, superiority over God in his ability to learn his ways and potentially resist them. He may grant that the God has, 
punished him or tried to punish him, but this does not necessarily amount to recognition that this god is ultimately more powerful than he is. And indeed, the fact that the story has him referring to himself in the third person and uses the phrase otohaish, which is standard a rabbinic way of referring to sort of morally problematic uh, uh, individuals, um, it really brings, uh, really brings this out. So it really brings out this uh, imperial hubris that is blind to human limitations. Titus is drunk on his own power, despite ironically not having been able to drink any wine. Um, and, uh, and it therefore eludes his understanding that the command to split open the head of that man, that is to say his own, will inevitably result in his death, uh, preventing him from attaining the very knowledge that he intended to be gained through that action. So, um, so in essence, God tricks the emperor into bringing about his own demise. So paradoxically, it is precisely Titus's zeal to know more about this God that basically represents his actual punishment. So the story of the gnat that enters Titus's nose and makes its way uh, to the emperor's brain is thus emblematic of the typically Jewish resistance to Rome, subtle, surreptitious, and downright stealthy. So stealthy, in fact, that the emperor himself unwittingly promotes it. The gnat, we might say, is in fact Israel, or better still, becomes Israel by rummaging around in the emperor's brain. The dove, the burden to which the gnat appears to evolve, is in fact a standard rabbinic symbol for Israel, as if to suggest that it is precisely by resisting Rome that Israel consummates, develops its own identity. Like that lowliest of creatures, Israel, the lowliest of nations, ultimately prevails over a mighty empire. And before we move on, if you want to sort of visualize what this would look like, I'm going to try to go off the PowerPoint for a second and take you to Spaceballs, um, because I was watching this with my daughter some months ago, and I was struck to encounter that in this sort of critical scene where Lone Star confronts the Rick Moranis sort of Darth Vader character, you have this head that is, you know, there's this massive mega-made body, and okay, it's not the nose that they go through, but, but they go through the ear. Same idea. Just watch it. And like the gnat that sort of winds its way through um, the emperor's brain, this, you know, here they sort of wind their way through this, you know, massive uh, part of the antiquated technology here. They sort of wind their way into the middle. And I think you get the idea, but the point when they get to the very center, it's in the very center of this brain that you have the self-destruct button for the, for the empire. And Lone Star gets into a duel with the Darth Vader character. And eventually, it's the Darth Vader character who, because of a hubristic, uh, arrogant sort of a manner in which he attempts to defeat Lone Star, ends up banging his head against the self-destruct button. So it's the very same idea that sort of the ultimate trickery is to sort of find a stealthily, stealthy way into a great power and actually cause that power to ultimately bring about its own demise. Anyway. Uh, I found that funny about watching this that, uh, you know, so let's go back to the presenter. Okay, so very good. Um, oh, I may not have given you all these texts, but okay, you could hear me. Say. Okay, so if the story, now moving on to another section of the talk, that's called the Roman arch enemy, pun intended, and you'll see what the pun is in just a moment, the arch enemy. If the story of Titus and the gnat acknowledges the emperor's triumph in Jerusalem, 
but concocts a response in response a sly infiltration that leads to his demise, a subtle but unmistakable polemic against the emperor can be teased out of Benjamin of Tudela, who I mentioned at the outset, from his account of Rome in the context of his description of Jewish communities throughout the Mediterranean and Near East. So the relevant section commences with his observation that in this city there are lots and lots of palaces and impressive structures, more and different than where you find anywhere else in the world. And he only mentions, though, and he says palaces of lots of the Roman emperors, but depending on the version, he only actually mentions two or three of these actual palaces, of the emperors Vespasian, Titus, and Galba, who's a completely, mostly forgotten emperor who preceded Vespasian. And um, so let's look at one of, these, uh, one of these versions here. So he writes, outside of Rome is the palace of Titus, who was not received by the 300 senators uh, because he did not fulfill their command in, in taking three years to conquer Jerusalem, which task, according to their will, he ought to have accomplished in two. There is also the hall of the palace of King Vespasian, a very large and strong building. So in other words, the point is he's saying the Romans actually, unlike you know, what you see, you know, unlike they, the Romans were actually not so pleased with Titus when he came back from the siege of Jerusalem, because they had sort of said, you know, Jerusalem's not, such, you know, not so big, the Jews are not so strong. Now, you know, we'll, we'll, give you, we'll, grant you, uh, we'll grant you two years for that. But actually, he took three. And so when they came back, he basically, they made him take a palace outside of the city and didn't let him really come back and be honored in the city the way that, um, the way that, he, the way that he would have uh, expected. So this presentation of Titus via his palace is striking on several grounds. Um, first of all, it's sort of strange that the only concrete fact about the structure that he mentions is that it's located outside, outside the city. And we have a contemporary, more or less contemporary Latin text to the description of Rome that does something similar, but it says that you have the palace, uh, the palace of Titus and Vespasian, it's one, one palace, and that was outside of the city. So, but here, but in, in that Latin text, it's just sort of a purely neutral description. There's no explanation for why the palace is outside. Whereas here, it's linked to a specific reason that actually the Senate was actually sort of disappointed with, uh, with, uh, with Titus when he came back. So what's going on here? What, what might such a tradition reflect? And the argument that I make is that it actually has a lot to do with uh, the famous Arch of Titus. Because when you go actually, and the Arch of course is celebrating the great triumph that was accorded to Titus when he came back after destroying Jerusalem. And if you look actually, the famous inscription that's at the top of the, uh, of the, of the arch is actually that the Senate and the people of Rome basically are giving this, this arch to the divine Titus, basically thanking him for his great deeds in subduing the Jews and conquering Jerusalem. So my argument is that, you know, you couldn't really, you couldn't destroy this, this memorial, but you could try to silence it away. You could try to tell a different story about how the demise of Jerusalem took place. And that, I'm arguing, I'm suggesting was a local Roman tradition that actually Titus, yeah, he didn't actually do all that well actually, uh, that Benjamin found out about when he visited Rome and talked to Jews there that he then preserves for us uh, in, his, uh, in his account. Um, and hence uh, my subtitle for this section, The Arch Enemy. The Arch was an enemy. If you were a Roman Jew, uh, you know, every, you know, this was a major monument in the city. Wherever you went constantly, right in the center of town, you're constantly encountering this monument that basically celebrates your defeat, your destruction. You want to concoct some kind of response to it. You want to tell some kind of different story. 
Uh, and that's what I'm suggesting Benjamin of Tudela in his account preserves for us. He preserves that alternate account that the Roman Jews, that the Roman Jews uh, developed. All right, so that's a case of the Roman Jews developing a very particular uh, localized form of resistance against a Roman monument. Um, but in some other cases, I think that they actually are trying to accommodate, uh, accommodate Rome, make peace with Rome, avoid actually raising eyebrows too much. And that's how I, the way that I'm inclined to explain a striking absence in Benjamin of Tudela's account of Rome. He describes all kinds of monuments. He describes all kinds of Jewish traditions concerning the city. But one thing that he doesn't mention is actually one of the most fascinating Jewish traditions uh, concerning Rome, namely the claim that the Messiah is biding his time at the gate to the eternal city. The idea that the Messiah is actually basically at the gate, at the entrance to Rome, waiting for his time to declare his uh, arrival. This is a wonderfully ambiguous motif that raises a whole host of interesting questions. What does it mean that the source of Israel's ultimate redemption can be found at the very place that occasioned and maintains its ongoing subjugation? Does the Messiah standing at Rome's gate suggest that he is prevented from coming in or indicate that he is about to do so? Is his presence at Rome testimony to Roman strength or revealing of the city's ultimate weakness? Does it undermine Rome or risk undermining the Messiah himself? And a whole host of different Jewish sources tackle this question in different ways. So for starters, the myth of the Messiah in Rome should be considered alongside the tradition that says that the Messiah is actually was born on the 9th of Av, on Tisha B'Av, the date of the destruction of the two temples in Jerusalem. So the two traditions are, in fact, spatial and temporal corollaries of one another. So accompanying the expectation that the date of destruction will come to mark the start of redemption is the view that in the very place responsible for that destruction, the Messiah will one day appear. Thus, both the time and place that actualized it brought about Israel's destruction also harbor its salvation in potential. In addition, we should note that according to one, at least according to one tradition, the Messiah is not there alone. The Jerusalem Talmud advises in the name of Rabbi Joshua that if someone should ask you, where is your God, say to him, he is in a great city in Edom, and that's clearly code for Rome. So there's this idea that when the temple was destroyed, God himself went into a kind of exile, and this rabbinic sage is saying, where's God sort of hanging out spiritually? Well, actually, in Rome. But the, the most famous, uh, the most famous uh, story about the Messiah at Rome comes from the Babylonian Talmud, and I'm going to read you a little bit of it uh, here. And then actually the same Rabbi Joshua features in it. Rabbi Joshua met uh, Elijah, Prophet Elijah, standing by the entrance of another rabbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, famous rabbi, by his tomb. And he asked him, when will the Messiah come? And Elijah responds, go and ask him yourself. Well, where is he sitting? Oh, he's at the entrance of the gate of Rome. And how will I know? There are lots of people. It's a big city. How will I know that he's there, that it's him? Well, he is sitting among the poor lepers. All of them untie their bandages all at once and rebandage them together, whereas he unties and rebandages each separately, thinking, in case I'll be wanted, in case the time will arrive that I'm supposed to declare myself as the Messiah, I want to be, I want to be ready for that. Okay, so uh, he goes to him. Rabbi Joshua goes to Rome and greets him, saying, Peace upon you, master and teacher. Peace upon you, O son of Levi, the Messiah responds. 
So when will you come, he asked. Today, was his answer. On returning to Elijah, Elijah asked, so what did he say to you? Well, he lied to me, Rabbi Joshua says. He said he would come today, but he hasn't. And Elijah answered him, this is what he said to you. Today, if you will hear his voice, quoting uh, Psalms. Fascinating, uh, fascinating source. So this astounding passage deflates whatever glorious expectations and anticipations one might have, suggesting, that, suggesting instead that the Messiah is accessible in the here and now, could potentially come this very day, and is hardly a heroic figure, but rather poor and sickly. There is, in addition, the delicious irony that Rabbi Joshua misunderstood the Messiah's message, despite, in fact, hearing his voice. However, what I especially wish to stress here is the bridging of time and space this text presents, as if the grave of Shimon bar Yochai were a teleport and Elijah its operator, we are instantly beamed from the Galilee to Italy, from the unredeemed present to the virtually redeemed future. This, one could say, constitutes the ultimate retort to Rome, for it suggests that the emperor's mastery over space and time is really of no real consequence, uh, its great size really of no importance, for the whole question of Israel's redemption depends entirely upon Israel. He'll come if you hear his voice, that's it. The Messiah is so poor and sickly that Rome's wealth and might cannot help but overlook him. Here again we encounter that subtle, stealthy resistance of the sort discussed in the context of the gnat that uh, enters into Titus's nose. So other sources do different things with this notion of the Roman Messiah, uh, and some, some sources are sort of bothered by a Messiah sort of exposed to the muck and mire of uh, urban existence. So for example, the famous Rashi, our great commentator, he actually says, no, the Messiah is not actually in Rome, but in paradise in heaven above, uh, above Rome. And, um, and, some, and there's also a distinctly Palestinian Jewish tradition from the Middle Ages that seems offended by the notion that the Messiah would be found anywhere on earth outside of the Holy Land. So thanks to the fact that there is in fact a location in the Galilee bearing the same Hebrew name as Rome, that is Romi, and today the place is known as Chorvat Roma, a tradition emerged that it would be from, he, from a cave here that the Messiah would first emerge, from this little cave actually. So I myself undertook a pilgrimage to this kind of counter-Rome a few years back, and I can confirm that it doesn't quite match up to its namesake. This, this is about all there is there. But what this site lacks above ground, it more than makes up for below. A few rather unimposing openings that you see here and here uh, lead to one of the most extensive tunnel networks in the entire Galilee apparently left over from the Jewish revolts against the Romans in ancient times. So this locale has the advantage of offering a safe haven in which the Messiah can hide, and is furthermore in striking distance of the traditional site of Shimon bar Yochai's grave, thus enabling a more realistic reading of the Talmudic story we just looked at, but at the cost, of course, of deflating its subversion of the constraints of time and space that I think are actually its real power, this notion of a kind of teleport beaming between Galilee and uh, and, and, and Rome, the unredeemed present, the virtually redeemed uh, future. Why might, and here's really my question, why might Benjamin of Tudela or his Roman sources have left any reference to this tradition, to the Messiah, out? And I want to suggest a specifically Roman Jewish rationale for downplaying the Rome-Messiah connection. 
for a community that had generally good and at times very close relations with the ruling pontiff to project such specifically Roman Jewish messianic aspirations would have been rather foolish and potentially actually quite, uh, quite, da quite uh, dangerous. Um, happy to talk more about that, and there's an interesting manuscript that sort of offers further evidence, but I want to move on um, and get down more to modern times. So this is a section entitled, Rome and Zion, Menace and Model. Whether there is a Messiah to be encountered in Rome or not, the Eternal City, of course, has plenty of other attractions to offer. And as we head into modernity, the city became increasingly important as a site of Jewish, including especially secular Jewish, pilgrimage. Now, I don't ascribe much historicity to the great 16th century art historian uh, Giorgio Vasari's claim that the Jews of Rome, men and women alike, go every Shabbat to visit and adore Michelangelo's Moses. It's a fascinating line. He said, every Shabbat they go and they, and they adore. Now, it's not in St. Peter's. It's actually in a church called uh, St. Uh, Pietro in Vincoli, St. Peter in Chains, which is in a, a bit in the, further to the south. But... Um, but, uh, uh, and I'm happy to talk more about why he says that and if you want. Um, I don't think it really reflects a real actual historical tradition, but it's interesting what people, how people have interpreted that line. Um, but there is certainly no doubt that in the ensuing centuries, Jews really did begin to pay this sculpture a great deal of attention. Most famously among them, Sigmund Freud, who composed an entire essay on the work in 1914. I would in fact suggest that in the modern age, this sculpture has functioned for Jewish visitors to Rome as a kind of counterweight uh, and thus, again, as a form of resistance to the Arch of Titus. Because, again, the Arch of Titus depicts basically it's the Roman celebration of the destruction of Jerusalem. It's the carrying off of the menorah and all the temple implements to Rome. And here you have a heroic and extremely strong Moses. This was the most, mu the most muscular sculpture produced uh, since antiquity. Um, this is a very strong, military, mighty Moses, despite the, the long beard. Uh, so, it again, it evokes Jewish endurance and fortitude against the weakness and defeat on display in the arch. And its presence in a church marks perhaps another prime example of the stealth factor already reiterated here repeatedly. Indeed, there's a German language guide to Rome that was produced, uh, published in 1927 by a the secular German-Jewish historian and architect, Hermano Levinson, who actually tragically was among those thousands who were carted off to Auschwitz during World War II and perished there. He had moved to Rome because he so identified with the place and loved it and wrote this guide for Jewish visitors, basically a guide to Jewish Rome, written in German in the 20s. And he there, in that book, he describes the Moses as exerting such force over the viewer that he rather thinks he is standing before the tomb of the founder of Judaism himself as opposed to that of Pope Julius II, which was for whom the work really was created as a, as a kind of a tomb monument. So of course, at the end of Deuteronomy, which was just recently read in synagogue, we don't, no one knows where Moses is buried. He's saying, if there's any place where Moses is buried, it's sort of right here. Um, uh, and he, in addition, says that this sculpture, this masterpiece, has the power to bring wayward Jews back to their faith. The recasting of a masterpiece of Christian art as a reinforcer of Jewish identity and of a church as the best site in which to pay respects to Judaism's ancient liberator testifies to the continued vitality or viability of the Jewish response to Rome, 
even in an increasingly secular age. We're now in the 19th century. So in that period, um, Rome could have that same effect in the 19th century, or at least seems to have, it, have had it, in the case of a very different Moses, the German-Jewish philosopher, socialist, and proto-Zionist Moses Hess. And returning in his 1862 treatise, Rome and Jerusalem, to Jewish concerns after an estrangement, as he admits, of some 20 years, Hess makes the following statement, that while that with the liberation of the eternal city on the Tiber begins that of the eternal city on Mount Moriah, with the rebirth of Italy, the re resurrection of Judea. So he's writing in the period in which Italy is rising up again as a, as a united nation state, and he says this is kind of an anticipation of the same thing happening with the Jews in Judea, in the, in the, land, in the land of Israel. Now, in this work, he doesn't really say much more about, about Rome, uh, but in an earlier work of his called The Holy History of Mankind, he actually does say quite a bit. And he says um, that about the Jewish people, that this people has been destined from the beginning of time to conquer the world, not like Rome with its force of arms, but through the inner virtue of its spirit. And he says that sort of past history, Rome has sort of been triumphant through military might, but now basically the Jewish time is coming and Rome will be defeated and overcome by the Jewish spirit. This is how... Uh, this is uh, what he has to say. Uh, so for all of its universal military might, he's arguing, Rome had won but hollow victories, and in Hesse's age, Jewish Judaism's final conquest was at hand. So here, for all his radicalism and utopianism, and he was a very, he was a socialist thinker, he imagined sort of a utopian age being right at hand, he remains wedded to the traditional Jewish assimilation of Christian to pagan Rome, and as such mounts a powerful defense of Judaism. The perennial Christian charge of Jewish carnality, that Jews are oriented to body and that Christians are more concerned with the spirit, is here turned on its head, and Judaism now emerges as the true religion of the, of the spirit. All right, so what we have in, in Hess is a real tension between Rome as enemy and as model, uh, destroyer on one hand and inspirer on the other. And this tension is even more prominent or more visible in the uh, right-wing uh, Zionist revisionist movement, which emerged in the 20s and 30s as the main opposition to the labor Zionism of David Ben-Gurion and Chaim Weizmann. And the revisionists, you know, in the 20s and 30s, they actually, quite a lot of them, quite admired Mussolini uh, and his fascist Italy and saw that as a kind of model new society uh, for the future. And at the same time that they did that, basically saw Rome as a model for Zionism and for the future, they at the same time drew inspiration from an idealized portrait of the ancient Jewish heroism against imperial Rome. So, uh, and they called themselves, a lot of the revisionist Zionists, they called themselves Biryonim, after the zealots of the Great Revolt back in the year 66 of the Common Era, 2,000 years ago, just about. Now, the rabbis traditionally regarded the Biryonim as thugs. They had done something disastrous for the people. They had revolted in an impossible situation and had brought about, as a result, tremendous destruction for the Jewish people. But the revisionists cherished them as freedom fighters and named their youth movement Beitar after the final stronghold in the Bar Kokhba revolt back in 135. The name Beitar itself is, uh, on the one hand, also, it on the one hand recalls this last siege, but it also refers to, uh, it's an acronym for 
uh, Brit Yosef Trumpeldor, the covenant of Joseph Trumpeldor, after the early Zionist leader, who you see on this stamp here, whose alleged final words before falling in ba battle at Tel Chai in today's northern Israel were, Ein davar tov No matter, it's good to die for our country. Now these words were, of course, pilfered from the Roman uh, writer Horace's Dulce et decorum est propatria mori. In other words, there is quite a bit of Rome, whether as source or implacable enemy, uh, at, the root of, uh, uh, at the root of both ver uh, origins for the term Betar. Betar is the site of this battle against the Ro Romans, or, or Betar as an acronym recalling Joseph Trumpledor, who was influenced by Roman virtue and heroism. Um, and this, the spirit of Betar lives on today very much in the Betar Jerusalem soccer team, um, which preserves the memory of these two meanings. Again, Betar is the site of an ancient Jewish battle, and Betar as recalling Joseph Trumpledor's Roman-inspired heroism. So again, Rome is both this enemy that we fought against, and Rome as a kind of model for what heroic uh, uh, nationalism looks like. So revisionist, uh, and indeed general Zionist attempts to woo Italian support throughout the 20s and 30s bore only modest fruits. The revisionist leader, Vladimir Jabotinsky, succeeded neither in convincing Mussolini, Il Duce, openly to support Zionist aims, nor even in obtaining an audience with him. But the Italians did allow the opening in 1934 of the Betar Naval Academy in the port city of Civitavecchia, near Rome, many of whose trainees uh, went on to assume important positions in the Israeli Navy. And the academy even procured its own ship, christened, I'm actually not sure what you, how you, what you call the naming of the Jewish ship, but christened, uh, the Sarah One, and here you see her, which sailed throughout the Mediterranean in the late 30s and was regarded by the trainees as marking the revival of long dormant Jewish naval power. Among the revisionists, the case of Jabotinsky is especially striking. In a 1922 letter to Mussolini, he dreamed of the future Jewish state serving as an agent for the spread of Italian culture in the Eastern Mediterranean and Near East. Hebrew culture, so his argument went, was not yet mature enough to, attend, to stand on its own and needed therefore to be allied to one of the great European languages and literary traditions. Wacky as this might seem today as geopolitics, though it did make some sense back then, it certainly makes for great psychobiography. Jabotinsky had spent three formative years as a young adult in Rome, where he mastered the Italian language and engaged in intensive study of ancient Roman history and institutions at the University of Rome. Later, among his very literary exploits, he translated a portion of Dante's Inferno into Hebrew, and in this respect, did on an individual level help disseminate Italian culture in pre-state Palestine. Most remarkably, in his 1936 autobiography, Jabotinsky confessed, if I have a spiritual homeland, it is Italy. And it's really truly quite amazing, astonishing to encounter such sentiment in a leading Zionist theorist and activist. Thus, in his letter to, uh, to Mussolini, Jabotinsky seems to be trying to reconcile his two great loves, Rome and Zion. Nor was this his sole attempt. In numerous writings spanning the 20s and 30s, Jabotinsky ardently sought to bridge the Italian and Hebraic worlds. For a time, he was supporter of efforts to adopt the Roman alphabet for modern Hebrew. 
as it happened with Turkish in the 20s, and also argued that, and I quote, the European sound, particularly that of Italian and other languages that developed along the shores of the Mediterranean, is the pure sound that modern Hebrew must emulate, as opposed, presumably, to that of Arabic. So he wanted a modern Hebrew that, as people were reviving, beginning to speak Hebrew again, he wanted it, actually, to sound, he wanted it to sound like Italian. Indeed, he argued in tandem that the noble intonation of these Mediterranean languages best approximated that of ancient Hebrew. So in other words, ancient Hebrew, it sounded like Italian. To my estimation, such rhetoric reaches its peak in a 1932 missive from Jabotinsky, fittingly enough to a revisionist leader in Italy, in which he calls for Zionism to, and I quote, turn the Jewish masses into a Latin people by means of a linguistic education. Beitarism, referring to his movement, Beitar, must be an educational program that brings new contents to the nation. Here we encounter an incredible irony, namely that the movement named after the last outpost left fighting against the Romans in antiquity, the Bar Kokhba revolt was the last one, should aim in the present to assimilate the Jews to the descendants of these vanquishers. A similar irony can be perceived in how the revisionist Zionist and scholar Chen Merchavya expressed matters in 1935. I'm quoting again. Like us, the Italian fascists look back to their historical heritage. We seek to return to the kingdom of the House of David. They want to return to the glory of the Roman Empire. And now I pose the question, did it not at all occur to Merchavya and those of like mind what trouble that Roman glory had caused the legacy of David's house? Destruction of the temple, for example. As it happened, they did not need to wait long for a reminder. Beginning in November 1938, three, just three years later, the Leggi Razziali, the racial laws, increasingly deprived Italian Jews of their civil rights. And on September 9, 1940, a mere three years after the Sarah One had plied her course from Civitavecchia to Haifa, the Italian Air Force bombed Tel Aviv, killing 137 people, the most severe in a series of Italian bombing raids of mandatory Palestine throughout 1940 and 1941, and far away the most lethal military attack in the history of the self-styled first Hebrew city. Thus, the most far-reaching attempt to rebrand Rome in the Jewish imagination went literally up in smoke after a few short years. Getting to the close here, the next session is called Bridge Over the Tiber? Question mark. In the post-war era, even as the Rome-Jews relationship has primarily been characterized by moves towards reconciliation between Judaism and Catholicism, this has not resulted in an end to Jewish resistance to a Rome still regarded as the eternal universal challenge and has to a certain degree merely motivated new forms thereof. To be sure, the release of Nostra Aetati in our time, the declaration of the relations of the church with non-Christian religions in 1965 in the context of the Second Vatican Council marked the beginning of a dramatic shift in Catholic attitudes towards Jews and Judaism and laid the groundwork, the initial groundwork, for arguably the most momentous journey of a pope known for his unprecedentedly ambitious travel schedule, and I refer here to Pope John Paul II's crossing of the Tiber River to enter the Tempio Maggiore, or Great Synagogue of Rome, on April 13, 1986. This was the first known visit of a pope to a synagogue ever, and the pope himself referred to it in retrospect as an event measured in centuries and millennia in the history of Rome. And if we, you know, if 
when we see a picture like this, the embrace of the Pope and then Chief Rabbi Elio Toaf, it's hard not to think of the reunion of Esau and Jacob on the shores of the Jabbok River recounted in Genesis 33:4. According to rabbinic tradition, uh, Esau was sort of the, the father of what ultimately became the Roman people. So you have that Genesis story, this, re, this embrace of brothers, and here you have, in a sense, thousands of years later, this embrace of brothers. Uh, Indeed, the issue of brotherhood was very much on the table at this encounter, with the Pope here for the first time, and something he repeated many times thereafter, referring to the Jews as our elder brothers. Uh, and it's the source of the Latin quotation on the reverse side of this medal that the Vatican issued in commemoration of the occasion. Fratres nostri maiores vos estis. Um, and its Hebrew counterpart, there's also a Hebrew phrase, uh, a quotation from Isaiah 56.7 translates as, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. It is striking to find this second passage, which in the New Testament actually accompanies Jesus' overturning of the tables of the money changers in the temple courtyard, now deployed ecumenically to affirm the legitimacy of church and synagogue alike. And it really is quite an amazing image, this, uh, this coin. As momentous as this occasion was for Jewish-Christian relations writ large, it held a particular significance for the Jews of Rome, who had a long tradition of ritualized and intensely hierarchical encounters with the Pope, particularly, particularly during papal coronations. Down through the 16th century, on these occasions, the Jews would typically offer their blessings to the pontiff and present him with a Torah scroll, at which point the Pope would acknowledge the validity of the law contained therein but reject the Jews' interpretation and observance thereof. On some occasions, our sources inform us, the Pope even cast the scroll to the ground, for Jews obviously a most sacrilegious affront. Beginning in 1590, but consistently from 1644, the direct confrontation over the Torah was replaced by the Jews' accompaniment of the Pope on his procession through the city between the Arch of Titus and the Colosseum. And thanks to a widespread tradition, according to which the Colosseum had been built by Jewish prisoners from the Great Revolt, both sites were highly symbolic of Jewish defeat. It was a very, very charged location for the Jews to be assigned on this procession. And whereas in the earlier version of the papal Jewish encounter, the Jews celebrated their local ruler by reciting verses from Hebrew scripture, in its later counterpart, when they were on this processional route, these texts were instead inscribed on posters displayed along the procession's route. Now, for the first time, the, now for the first time, the Pope himself came to encounter the Jews of Rome, in 1980, back to 1986, and especially their chief rabbi in their main synagogue. His gift to the community of a Torah scroll from the Vatican Library comes across, consciously or not, as a powerful token of remorse for the past ill treatment of this ritual object. And it is against this backdrop that the full significance of the commemorative medal emerges. St. Peter's and the Tempio Maggiore have, as it were, bridged the Tiber that divides them geographically and symbolically, and are presented side by side and on an equal footing. Again, absolutely remarkable. But this is not the entire story. An Israeli scholar has demonstrated in the traditional hierarchical papal Jewish encounter, the existence of a hidden transcript among the Jews. Thus, Pope Innocent X was received in 1644 with the very greeting David had bid 
uh, be extended to the wicked and soon to perish Nabal. While the innocuous sounding Yadova Kol, literally, his hand is in all things, applied to both Popes Pius VI and VII in the 18th and early 19th centuries, turns out to be extremely insulting when its biblical context is recalled. The angel's description of Ishmael's fate to his mother, Hagar, in Genesis 16. And I quote, Ishmael shall be a wild ass of a man, with his hand against everyone, Yadova Kol, and everyone's hand against him. So the point is that the Jews, they had to sort of celebrate the Pope, but in choosing very strategically particular verses, they could basically sound like they were praising the Pope, but inside know that actually they were critiquing him. And I argue that actually a careful reading of the speeches of the Pope and Chief Rabbi at their equalized encounter in 1986 reveals beneath the language of interreligious rapprochement the presence, now on both sides, of a hidden transcript as well. For example, when the Pope opened his remarks by indicating that he, and I'm quoting, would, would like, together with you, to give thanks and praise to the Lord, who chose Abraham in order to make him father of a multitude of children, as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, was he not for his Christian audience offering a subtle challenge to the Jewish conception of Abraham as a patriarch specifically to the Jews? On the Jewish side, Rabbi Toaf reaffirmed God's universal fatherhood over all men, the relationship that must join men to their creator, a relationship of father and child, deploying as his proof text, Deuteronomy 14.1, you are children of the Lord your God. But in this verse, is there not also a subtle reminder of Israel's special status? The immediate sequel, verse 14.12, reads, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. It is you the Lord has chosen out of all the people on earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Would not the learned Jewish listener have detected here, alongside the public affirmation of universal human dignity, a private commitment to the particular notion of the Jews as God's children? Likewise, the rabbi presented as universal the invocation to holy, sorry, the rabbi presented as universal the invocation to holiness in our lives in Leviticus 20:26. 20, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, but left unsighted the continuation of the verse, and I have separated you from the other peoples to be mine. Most significant in this regard, however, is Rabbi Toaf's intriguing citation of the entirety of Isaiah 6, uh, 61, 10, and 11 at the very close of his address. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. So to be sure, this passage beautifully suits the unique and unprecedented occasion celebrated by Pope and Rabbi alike. But it is at the same time hard to imagine that Rabbi Toaf or his most learned listeners were oblivious to that which immediately precedes and follows this exaltation. For just before, at 61.8, the prophet speak, uh, speaks for God in declaring that, as you can see here, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense. 
And directly after, at 62.1, Isaiah himself insists that, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until her vindication shines out like the dawn. Thus, what on the surface appeared simply to be a celebration of Catholic-Jewish agreement functioned at a deeper level as an implicit insistence upon either Catholic universalism or Jewish particularity and as a scathing indictment of past Catholic persecution. Rabbi Toaf skillfully managed to not keep silent even as he did exactly that. Or, alternatively, one could argue that he could in fact keep silent because in Pope John Paul II's visit to the Tempio Maggiore of Rome, Zion and Jerusalem, after centuries, if not millennia, were finally vindicated. But not entirely, for a major issue broached by the Jewish speakers on the occasion of the Pope's synagogue visit concerned the policy of the Vatican regarding the State of Israel, which in 1986 the Holy See had yet to recognize. In 1993, Israel and Vatican City did establish diplomatic relations, and in 2000, that same Pope, John Paul II, became the first ever to pay an official state visit to Israel. This further indication of rapprochement points us toward a conclusion, and I am getting now to the end, I promise. Toward a conclusion, eternal city, immortal people. In a world in which the Pope treats Argentinian rabbis and Jewish leaders to a kosher lunch of Roman Jewish specialties at the Vatican guest house, as happened in January 2014. Here's a photo from that gathering. And in which presidents of Israel host popes in Jerusalem with some regularity. The food is probably also kosher. In which Roman Jews sell statuettes and rosaries from the stalls outside St. Peter's, a virtual Jewish monopoly. And that's really true, all the sort of uh, Trinket sellers, sellers selling Catholic merchandise around St. Peter's, they're for the most part Jewish merchants. Um, and as they dress up as Roman legionnaires uh, against whom their ancestors likely fought, and here you see a picture of the Jewish Roman Davide uh, with my daughter, uh, posing with my daughter Salome in the spring of 2014. And a substantial number of these gladiators who you find in the Roman form and outside the Colosseum are Jewish. Um, as, as was the case with this uh, David, Davide. In such a world, it is perhaps tempting to conclude that our story of animosity and conflict and symbolic significance has perhaps come to its close in a final resolution, that Rome no longer represents the eternal adversary and universal power, and as such has, for all intents and purposes, finally faded away from the Jewish imagination. But not so fast, for as Stephen Fine, a contemporary Jewish studies scholar, has shown, the warming of official Catholic-Jewish relations in the last generation has been accompanied by the emergence of a new urban legend among Jews, according to which the Vatican is in possession of the temple menorah depicted on the Arch of Titus. This supposed skeleton in the closet, or rather candelabrum in the basement, can, th can thus be used to nurture and justify suspicions as to the genuineness, genuineness of Catholic overtures to Judaism. And I myself have encountered this urban myth. I've conducted research at the Vatican Library, and I'm on many occasions telling people in the US, you know, at synagogues, oh, that I've done that, or I'm going over there to do that. They're like, oh, will you please look out for that menorah? Can you bring back the menorah with you, and so forth? Because they knew that the menorah is there. But this is actually a modern legend that really only emerged in the last few decades. The emergence of this claim appears especially fascinating against the backdrop of the stories sketched in this presentation. After all, as we have seen, 
the particularist Jewish resistance to the universal power of Rome has typically been expressed in terms of stealth, a measly gnat sneaking into the unsuspecting Titus's nose, an unavoidable and intimidating arch of triumph left entirely unmentioned and polemicized against, a downtrodden Messiah hiding unannounced at the gate of the eternal city. Jews appreciated that a project of universal domination necessarily creates space for particularistic subterfuge and localized subterfuge, and, it, and indeed at times exaggerated Roman ambitions or restrictions in order to enhance their response thereto. But now the alleged subterfuge has switched sides, with the Roman Catholics said to obfuscate their continued domination, witness the captive menorah, through supposed gestures of friendship. Thus, even as it becomes more difficult and tenuous, it seems that Jews in the early 21st century are still not quite ready, at least some Jews, are still not quite willing to let go of Rome, still not quite ready to let Rome fade from their imagination, which raises the question as to whether the immortal people, as Mark Twain styled the Jews, at some level needs the eternal city to be its antagonist. Might that be the key to its survival? Now that's sort of the ending, but I have one last little addendum, I promise, very short. <laughs> I wrote those final words a few years back, but since then, the Vatican and Jewish community of Rome hosted their first ever joint exhibit called La Menorah, Culto, Storia e Mito, The Menorah, Worship, History, and Legend, which ran from May through July 2017. As Barbara Giotta, director of the Vatican Museum, quipped, we have exposed so many menorahs on purpose in order to make sure that we don't have any other ones in the Vatican. <laughs> and on August 31st, 2017, a consortium of leading Orthodox Jewish rabbis from North America, Europe, and Israel delivered the statement, Between Jerusalem and Rome, Reflections on 50 Years of Nostra Aetate, reflecting on the Vatican II's shifts to Pope Francis. Initially, and I'm quoting from the document, many Jewish leaders were skeptical of the sincerity of the church's overtures to the Jewish community due to the long history of Christian anti-Judaism. The authors write, over time, however, it has become clear that the transformation in the church's attitudes and teachings are not only sincere, but also increasingly profound, and that we are entering an era of growing tolerance, mutual respect, and solidarity between members of our respective faiths. And finally, in May 2018, the route of the celebrated Giro d'Italia bike race, sort of like the Tour de France of, of Italy, commenced in Jerusalem and ended in Rome. In anticipation, here you see it, in anticipation uh, of this unprecedented route for a cycling competition, Zev Elkin, Jerusalem Affairs and Heritage Minister for Israel at the time, declared that there is great historical symbolism in the fact that the race will begin in Jerusalem and end in Rome. 2,000 years ago, our fathers went out from here to Rome with bent heads. After 2,000 years, we returned here and founded a state. This race represents the closing of an amazing historical circle of which no one could have dreamed. So has the story of Rome and the Jewish imagination perhaps now finally reached its end? Certainly this lecture has. Thank you very much. Um, we have gone over time. But Sorry about we, that. I think we can take one or two quick questions. It'll be very quick questions. Okay, Alita, quick question. Will you get the lights back there, please? Are you familiar with Professor Shira Klein at Chapman University yes. who just I, published a book about yeah. 
the time. And she I, um, went to some lectures of hers, and she talks about the fact that Jews had such a special allegiance and a patriotism towards Italy uh, in the hundred plus years leading up to fascism and even through fascism, yep. that even those Jews who are now survivors of the Holocaust um, and or um, um, exiles from Italy still are spreading this, this myth that Italians were, were uh, innocent of anti-Semitism. So yes. does that feed into what you've suggested is maybe this love affair with Italy that, that transcends reality of well, the relationship? Very quickly, certainly, you're, she's absolutely correct, and it's certainly true that the Jews were very much pro-modern Italy. Because modern Italy, you know, you have to remember, prior to the emergence of the modern Italian state, you know, you had the, the ghettos in, in Rome and Venice and other places. So it was Italian, it was modern Italian nationalism that really represented a kind of salvation for Italian Jews from sort of the past sort of Catholic domination and so forth. So they embraced it wholeheartedly. Um, and I think it's so much a part of their identity uh, from contemporary terms that yes, I think some of them are willing to sort of, I mean, not that they forget, but they're willing to sort of forgive this sort of brief uh, sort of interlude of madness and remain very proud of their Italian identity. And I you know, encountered Jews in Rome who've told me, I am just as Italian as I am Jewish, or I am even more Italian than I am Jewish. And of course, it helps that for many of them, they really, their families really do go back centuries. And you know, it's hard to say whether it's true or not, but you'll encounter people in Rome who will tell you, you know, my, I, I, my family came over with Titus you know, 2,000 years ago. So if you've really been around that long in a place or believe that you've been around that long, it would take quite a lot to really sort of make you think that I don't, that, you know, that I don't belong here. But it's also a kind of ideological affirmation to say, yeah, okay, despite you know, these things, despite Mussolini and so forth, I'm really Italian, I'm really a part of this place. Because you know you want to believe that that's that that's really true, but it, it's certainly true that there is you know anti-Semitism in Italy, and um, so there is a bit of wishful thinking there. I think, given time, now we are only public question, but I wanted to thank uh, okay. Mr. Coker for coming. Thank you so much. I want to thank, thank all of you for coming out. I guess when we go to Italy now, we will serve out the Messiah. Please do. That's one of our uh, objectives on our. And don't leave the menorah in Rome uh, either. All right, thank you so much. I'm happy if you have personal questions. You know, I'm happy to still you know, answer questions. Just come talk to me.